On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Jeff Chang about Charles Spurgeon's ecclesiology. So we cover all sorts of topics like how engaged was Spurgeon in the membership process? Did he use the Second London Confession of Faith for new members or for members? How did he set the conditions for baptism in the table? Uh, How did Spurgeon maintain church discipline? And so much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your co-host, Brandon Askew. And we're a podcast that is devoted to thinking, but we want to think Uh, with a particular posture. So there's a lot of podcasts that you don't want to do intellectual stuff, but we want to do intellectual stuff with a posture of charity, of curiosity, and of critical thinking, all while pursuing a cheerful posture of confessionalism. Uh, I think today, oftentimes, confessionalism gets unfairly lumped into non-cheerful. So we're hopeful to reverse that trend and make it uh, a happier uh, confessionalism. And now in that vein, we have, I think, a really fun interview for you guys, especially for those who love Spurgeon, which I think is pretty much every Baptist and every non-Baptist who actually reads him, because uh, he's one of the most enjoyable people to just read and engage, and that's Charles Spurgeon. Um, so we're going to talk about him, and we're hearing from one of the foremost experts on Spurgeon in Jeff Chang. And I, well, I hope I pronounced your name right, Jeff. I, I don't know if it's t- technically Jeff or not. Yeah, you got it correct. <laughs> okay, right. cool. Yeah. Uh, every time I do this, I forget to pr- like, how do you pronounce your name? And then I get to the point of introducing it and I get all this anxiety that I'm going to do it wrong. Um, but I, I guess I hit, hit the nail on the head. Well, so, I, grew up, Jeff, I grew up in Texas and it was mispronounced all the time. So it's understandable. <laughs> well, it's a really quick. I have a funny story about this. So we used to play fantasy baseball growing up, me and my buddies and, and one of my friends. So we were doing the fantasy baseball draft and there used to be a, a baseball player named Jeff Jenkins. Mm. And uh, and it came time for my buddy to pick, and he goes, "Yeah, I'll take G off Jenkins," and I because <laughs> it's spelled the same way. Oh man, we still—I mean, that was twenty years ago. We still oh, laugh man. about it now. But sorry, that was an aside. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, that all aside, Jeff, why don't you introduce us uh, yourself to our listeners a little bit? I imagine some are familiar with you. Uh, some aren't familiar with you. And then, what is it that got you interested in Spurgeon to begin with? Yeah, thank you, Jordan. Hey, it's so good to be with you guys. Uh, so good to be on your podcast, the, the one of the few podcasts with a picture of Spurgeon on the logo. So it's an honor to be uh, with you. Uh, I serve as assistant professor of historical theology at Midwestern Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, and I also serve as the curator of the Spurgeon Library there. I've, I've been here in Kansas City for a little less than a year. So prior to, to this time, I was uh, serving as a pastor in Portland, Oregon. Uh, and I did that for about a decade. But yeah, during my time as a pastor, I began to think about doctoral studies. And one of my mentors told me that, like, if you want to study something for your PhD and not sort of grow dry <laughs> in your spiritual walk, uh, you should study Spurgeon. Uh, you, you'll walk out with not only the degree, but kind of encouragement in your soul. Um, and he encouraged me to, to to look into Spurgeon's ecclesiology. So started that journey about five years ago and uh, it's been it's been a joy kind of exploring this overlooked aspect of the Prince of preachers and uh, and, and I've been hugely encouraged and, and now by God's grace uh, this opportunity to serve at, at Midwestern has come up 
And, you know, at, at the Spurgeon Library, we uh, steward about 6,000 volumes of his kind of personal pastoral library. Wow. Uh, he originally owned something like 12,000 volumes, uh, but we have about half of that collection. Uh, and we have the half that contains all of his kind of theology and, and biblical studies and, and books on pastoral ministry. So it's a wonderful collection uh, mm-hmm. and it's a beautiful space. So to any of you who are listening who want to kind of explore the life of Spurgeon more, you want to take a trip, uh, come out to Kansas City and come check out the Spurgeon Library. Yeah, very cool. Very cool. Um, yeah, so this this is going to be an interesting conversation because I think most people, they, they know a lot about Spurgeon as a preacher, but we want to maybe focus on um, the rest of his role uh, as a pastor. And so we're going to zero in on his ecclesiology a little bit. So I guess we can just begin with, tell us how engaged Spurgeon was specifically in, in the membership process when somebody was becoming a new member at the uh, Metropolitan Tabernacle. What was Spurgeon's involvement there? Yeah, Spurgeon was very engaged in that membership process. You know, that, and that flowed out of his ecclesiological, ecclesiological convictions. I mean, he, he was very much aware that he was a pastor. He wasn't just at a preaching station. You know? So uh, he understood that kind of part of what it meant to be a church was to, to, to practice regenerate church membership. Uh, and he felt kind of the responsibility as a pastor to sort of safe keep the church uh, in, in kind of that membership process. And so a part of that process was actually to meet with Spurgeon. Uh, there were lots of other steps, and we can walk through that. You know, they would meet with the elders. There will be congregational meetings. But kind of one of the early steps was that they would actually meet with Spurgeon. Uh, and, you know, the, the the elders would do kind of that first step of taking down an applicant's testimony and kind of their story. But then they would meet with Spurgeon, and Spurgeon would examine their understanding of the gospel. Uh, he would examine their testimonies and, uh, and he would take down notes from that, you know, saying, Hey, here are things that we should kind of be on the lookout for. Here are things to be mindful of. Um, <clears throat> there's a, a recent volume that's come out called wonders of grace by Hannah Winkle. And that's a, a collection of um, membership interview forms uh, from the Metropolitan Tabernacle. And in them, you can see sort of Spurgeon's handwriting in them as he's, kind of making notes on each membership, each membership applicant that's coming in. Um, yeah. So the, the church saw a, a tremendous amount of growth during his ministry there. So do you, do you have any, do we have an idea of how many of these uh, membership interviews he would have done in say a, a month, month's time? Yeah, he, he did a ton of them, you know, so he started in 1854 there at the new park street chapel. Uh, and for the first, um, 12, 14 years, um, you know, his, his brother comes on as his co-pastor in 1868. And kind of from that point on, he, he kind of takes over a lot of those more pastoral duties. But prior to that time, Spurgeon was doing everything. So, uh, you know, there's, I found this one quote speaking in 1884. So I guess towards the end of his life, he kind of re-engages some more. But he talks about on that day, he saw 40 people for membership interviews. Uh, and he said, um, I felt as weary as ever a man did in reaping the heaviest harvest. <laughs> he, he said, if, if I kept doing that, I would literally die from exhaustion. Um, but, you know, 40 membership interviews in one day, I'm, I'm guessing he's taking about 15 minutes each, uh, kind of, again, examining their understanding of the gospel, working through the testimonies and taking down pastoral notes. Uh, he's doing a lot. Yeah, you're right. There were, there were hundreds of people joining the church each month. So he's doing a lot of work there. That, that's insane. Did... Was this a practice that he, was a holdover from 
the previous pastor or is this something he decided to institute and then realized, holy cow, this is way too much work. <laughs> I've got to reconfigure how this works. Yeah, I think it, it was a holdover because, you know, when he arrived, uh, he was the solo elder or solo pastor. You know, he had deacons around him, uh, you know, but under kind of Gill and Rippon prior to him, the church had moved to a solo pastor model. So he kind of had that pastoral responsibility to examine each person coming in. Now, Gill and Rippon weren't looking at that many people coming in. Uh, it wasn't anywhere near that amount. Um, so he, he certainly had to adjust. So you mentioned under Gill and Rippon, it went to a single pastor model. That's I, I had no idea. That's fascinating. It's mm -hmm. totally irrelevant to Spurgeon. But was that because they legit believed like plurality of elders is not a not a thing? Or... You know, uh, there have been studies on on that move. You know, under Benjamin Keach, who was one of the earlier pastors of that church, he when you look at his sort of manual for for church discipline, uh, he talks about a plurality of elders. Uh, you know, so early Baptists kind of practiced that. But as you move kind of more towards 17th, uh, like later 17th, 18th century, um, you see Baptists beginning to to distinguish themselves by. Uh, holding to sort of solo pastor models because they felt like that plurality was something that the Presbyterians tended to do, you know? And so they, 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 they can't do anything that Presbyterians that. do. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so they kind of felt like this, their distinctness was in that practice. Yeah. So we know that Spurgeon, um, he, he, he thought a lot of the second London Baptist Conve confession of faith. So maybe walk us through, um, what role that confession played in the life of the church, um, whether it be in, in the new members process or just did, did Spurgeon use it as a teaching tool um, in the life of the church? How, how, how did that look? Yeah, Spurgeon did uh, prize the Second London Baptist Confession. Um, he, uh, about a year after he arrived in 1855, he actually worked with his publisher to have it uh, kind of reprinted in, in a kind of cheap, accessible uh, format, you know, small, easy to carry. Uh, and he made it available to his people. Uh, he included with it a little preface, letting them know that, hey, he, here's a, a volume that's been believed among us by those who have come before us. Uh, it's not authoritative in the sense of being, you know, sort of inspired. Uh, and yet it is a, a, a guide in our faith. Um, and he sort of calls his people to, to kind of own that. Um, yeah, and so he he provided it for new members who are joining the church. Uh, he used it as a sort of as a young Christians kind of discipling tool. So for for new Christians who were growing in the faith, they would get a copy and they would walk through it with an older Christian and kind of study it. Um, you know what he was doing there was just again pushing back against the the, the nominalism of his day. Uh, lots of English people would identify as Christians uh, just by virtue of being English. And he wanted to build sort of a confessional basis for the church, right? That the church was was not just a social club, but built on scripture. Uh, one interesting thing is that when they built the Metropolitan Tabernacle, they stuck a, a Bible underneath the, the cornerstone, but they also put a copy of the Second London Confession under the cornerstone. Um, so, you know, sometimes Spurgeon gets a, a bad rap for being kind of anti-credal, uh, but that's not the case at all. You know, he, he very much understood that... Um, that you needed to have a, a confessional basis for, for the church. So when it comes to Spurgeon's thoughts on baptism and the table or Lord's Supper or Eucharist, whatever term he would use for that, uh, 
how did he set the conditions for both of those? Yeah. Yeah. He, he very much understood that, that baptism and the table uh, kind of gave a visible picture of the church uh, and therefore it, it mattered how they were practiced. You know, for baptism, the conditions for that uh, would, would have been the same as for church membership. Um, he, uh, he, if you wanted to be baptized by Spurgeon, it, it would happen as you were in that process of joining the church. Um, you know, they took in over 14,000 members during his ministry there. And I think he baptized about 80% of those people, uh, which is just incredible. I mean, these are a lot of these were conversions. Um, I'm not aware of a single instance of a baptism where he did not take someone into church membership following the baptism. Mm-hmm. So he always kind of held the two together. Uh, you know, you've got to, so, so the requirements were just a credible profession of faith and a clear understanding of the gospel. And, uh, and it's always connected to kind of church membership and discipline. Uh, as far as the table, he was an open communion guy. So he, you know, certainly members were encouraged to participate, uh, but visitors could participate too. And, and um, he, he fenced the table for visitors by requiring tickets for them to participate. So, you know, he didn't require believers baptism for these visitors. So you could be a Pado Baptist uh, in the 19th century and take the Lord's Supper at the tabernacle. Uh, but you had to come earlier in the week and, and meet with one of the elders and the elder would interview you and, and hear your testimony here. What, what are you doing here in London? You know, where are you a member of a church? How long are you here for? Uh, and he would grant you tickets if, if everything looked good. Uh, and then you could take the Lord's Supper there. Was was his stance on open communion? Did that that cause him any kind of controversy with other Baptist pastors um, during his ministry, or was it just kind of something that uh, you know kind of went without any any issue? Uh, no, it definitely caused him trouble. You know, there were you know the more strict Baptists who who were closed communion or, or strict communion. The Americans, uh, the American Baptists, tended to be, tended to be more strict mm-hmm. in their communion practices, so they always gave him a hard time about that. But but over in Britain. Baptists by the 19th century were beginning to move more towards open communion. So that became kind of the mm. dominant position. I, I do have a follow-up question about, about baptism. So did was baptism something that they did weekly or was it did they have specific Sundays kind of scheduled throughout the year where they, they did, you know, a lot of baptisms at once? How did that look for um for their church? Yeah, they had so many people coming to be baptized, you know, by God's grace. That uh, they, they practiced baptism kind of throughout the week, uh, usually at a Monday night service, Okay, um, which was, you know, if, if there wasn't a baptism, Monday nights were usually kind of uh, the prayer meeting for the church. Um, but they also used it as a baptismal service. Um, yeah. And that would just happen as, as people were joining the church, they would schedule it as needed. Mm, okay. So the question that I had thought about with relation to the open communion piece is why is it that those in Britain seem to be a little bit more lax on this, whereas Americans were stricter? Is there, is this a cultural thing or is there actual theological reasons for both of them? And they, that's just the way they went. That's an interesting question. Uh, you know, I, I don't know that I can kind of nail down a, a particular study that's looked into that. I just, you know, you tend to, I tend to think that folks who are, kind of more on the frontier of things t- tend to be a little more conservative. You know, uh, Baptists in America tended to be away from the cities, kind of living more 
in rural areas. And so they, they tend to be kind of more hard line in their Baptistic identity. Uh, yeah. And uh, the influence of landmarkism in America was huge also. Um, Campbellism. So, yeah. so those things I think were, were all factors. That makes sense. So one thing I'm really curious about in his Spurgeon's practical ecclesiology is how he maintained church discipline. So he had, you know, by all standards, a mega church. Yes. Um, that seems very difficult to maintain any semblance of church discipline. I, I mean, I, even today, you go to any church that's above what two or three hundred, and it seems to become very, very difficult mm-hmm. to really maintain that because so many people can just kind of go in unseen, right? Mm-hmm. So, what is his method in, in handling all of that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, and that's that was a challenge in his day, as I said earlier, the, the nominalism of England. I think there was a, a census taken there in the, in the middle of the nineteenth century where. Uh, it counted 60% of England being church attending, you know, and that's, that's a remarkable number. That's, you know, in America, I think the number today is maybe 20%. So imagine your, your church attendance tripling, you know, uh, overnight, that would be quite impressive. But uh, so much of that, as Spurgeon looked at it, was nominalism. He realized that these were people who, you know, for whom it was advantageous for them to be connected with a church and, and called a Christian, uh, and yet there was no spiritual life. So he wanted to, to maintain uh, church discipline. Uh, a few things, a few ways that he did that. Um, <clears throat> there, he, he had a pretty strict membership process. So, to talk about church discipline, you've got to talk about kind of the front door of the church, right? How you come in. Uh, you know, certainly having to meet with Spurgeon was a big step. Another step in that membership process, uh, af- after the, the the candidate was presented for the church, the church would actually appoint messengers uh, to go out into the communities and kind of ask around. You know, how, did you know that this applicant was joining the, the Metropolitan Tabernacle? You know, wh- what do you think of him? Uh, does, he, does he give evidence of being a genuine Christian? Uh, they would investigate that person's kind of workplace and neighborhood and home and sort of try to get a sense of their reputation out there. You know? and, and so uh, this, this sort of strict membership process, I think, uh, did a good job for, for sort of dissuading those who are just wanting to join the church for the name of it. Um, uh, his his brother wrote a piece where he said this about the membership process. We have never yet found it tend to keep members out of our midst while we have known it of service in detecting a mistake or satisfying a doubt previously entertained. Uh, we deny that it keeps away any worth having. Uh, surely, if their Christianity cannot stand before a body of believers and speak amongst loving, sympathizing hearts, it is as well to ask if it be the cross-bearing, public-confessing faith of the Bible. Mm. You know, so so they're kind of even in that process, they, they are sort of winnowing the people who are coming forward, who are making professions of faith. Um, and then in terms of kind of once they've joined the church, one tool that they used to just keep track of the, the membership of the church uh, was uh, the use of communion tickets. As I said earlier. Uh, when you join the church, you would get a, a perforated card with 12 communion tickets on it with a number on it. And each time you took the Lord's Supper, you would turn in a ticket, uh, which would indicate that you're a member of the church. Uh, and then the clerks would collect those tickets. And that would help them track uh, who's showing up uh, for, for church on Sundays. And if someone had not taken the Lord's Supper in more than three months consecutively, then the elders would be kind of notified and they would 
begin to kind of look into it and see what's going on. And that way they were able, yeah, they were able to track their members. I, I can't imagine a church today doing something like that. No. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's, he, he's, you know, it's, it's pretty kind of creative. And yet at the same time, it's kind of intentional, right? Um, <clears throat> he, Spurgeon very much feels that to be a member of the church uh, means something, you know? Yeah. And so every person needs to be accounted for. Yeah, that's that's amazing with a church that size to have that attention to detail on on discipline and and be that intentional about whether each individual member is there for the supper. Like, I mean, that's just. I mean, I think it's good for any church, but I mean, for a church that size, I mean, that's mm-hmm. just that's amazing to me. Yeah. Um, are there any? Is there anything on in the in the records of the church? Um, like, uh, were there any? Uh, issues of, of church discipline as communications that were particularly um, you know, a big deal in his ministry, things that um, took a particular toll on the congregation, any huge scandals or anything like that, that we know about? Yeah, there, there were, if you look through the minute books there during Spurgeon's years um, <clears throat> there, just like any other church in our day, there were cases of church discipline. Uh, I, I wrote down a list of some of the cases in his first seven years. Uh, and you've got things from embezzlement down to adultery, to, to financial impropriety, to, to neglect of religious duties, theft, abuse. Um, there was the case once of one of the, one of the deacons of the church uh, stealing money from the church and, and he was disciplined. So, so yeah, num- a number of cases of discipline. Now, when you look at that number compared to how many people they were taking in, it's actually a pretty low percentage. So in, in that sense, that's encouraging. Um, but yeah, uh, you know, I, I would imagine that, especially kind of in those more high profile cases, that was a, it was a painful thing for the church. You know, uh, and there were probably many tears shed over that. So the church itself, how did they go about, I guess, if they had members meetings or congregational members meetings, if they had them, what did that look like on a church of that scale? Mm-hmm. Yes, they, they had a lot of congregational meetings. They, they, were, they were good Baptists in that sense. <laughs> uh, you know, when, when Spurgeon arrived there, they, they met once a month uh, on a Wednesday night. Um, but they had so many people coming into to membership that they began to have to have more of them. And so basically a few years in, what they're doing in order to just process people through that membership process. Uh, they, they began to just hold members meetings kind of whenever the church came together. So if they were coming together on a Monday night for prayer meeting, let's hold a quick impromptu 30 minute congregational meeting before the prayer meeting and another like 45 minutes after the prayer meeting uh, and just try to, you know, get some people through that membership process. Um, so, so in any given month, they might hold 20 congregational meetings. Again, just to wow. to take people through the membership process. You know, Charles uh, Spurgeon would would chair those meetings, um, and they mostly dealt with membership issues: uh, people leaving the church, voting them out of membership, and and people joining the church, uh, taking them in. And once a year, they would hold kind of an annual meeting where they would hear reports from the various ministries of the church. They would vote on new elders, um, vote on new deacons. One of my favorite pieces of marginalia. In the minute books, uh, in one of the margins, you see Spurgeon's handwriting, and he says, "This most blessed meeting 
lasted till a late hour at night. Bless the <laughs> Lord. <laughs> I think that bless the Lord there was genuine. He was genuinely encouraged by that. And I think that's that reveals something about the culture of those meetings. They, you know, if you imagine sitting through a congregational meeting where 20 people are getting up and sharing their testimonies about how they were converted mm-hmm. by by other people in the church sharing the gospel with them or by you know the preaching of the word or or or, or what have you. Um, that would just be such a joyful time together, you know. And so uh, I get the sense that the culture of these congregational meetings was kind of this joyful congregationalism where every member was interested in and excited about the work of the church. Yeah. You mentioned uh, elders and deacons. Talk to us a little bit about how each one of those offices uh, functioned at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. What what kind of work um, were the elders doing? What kind of work were the deacons doing? Because, you know, in today's, um, especially um, some Southern Baptist churches, you know, you got a lot of deacons who are functioning maybe more like elders. So h- how did that look um, in, in their church? What did elders do? What did deacons do? I think they were pretty unique. Uh, you know, they, like, as I said earlier, they had elders and deacons. Uh, initially they only had deacons and deacons basically did everything. When I look at all that the deacons were doing when Spurgeon first got there, I don't know how they got anything done. I don't know how they, they worked their jobs or, or did anything else. So it's quite impressive. Uh, but by 1859, the church is growing so much that Spurgeon begins to teach on elders, and, and eventually the congregation votes to to call elders to serve. Uh, and they make a, a pretty kind of clear division of, of labor. You know, the elders are given kind of the spiritual care of the church, and the deacons are given the practical care of the church. So elders are uh, visiting candidates for church membership. They They are interviewing those candidates. Um, they are looking after people who are, are not attending. Uh, they, they divided the church into districts and assigned districts to different elders so that they would have oversight over kind of sections of the congregation. Uh, there was one elder devoted particularly to, to visiting those who were sick. Uh, these elders taught Bible classes for, for young Christians. Uh, they did catechizing classes. They conducted the prayer meetings. So a lot of those kind of spiritual care kinds of things. Uh, and the deacons just had different practical responsibilities. Uh, again, taking care of finances, uh, church property, uh, kind of the, the, the corporate gatherings of the church, the ordinances, those kinds of things. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, one question that I'm really curious about personally is, what are Spurgeon's thoughts on just associationalism, denominationalism, those types of things, connectionalism among mm. Baptist churches. Is he for it? Is he against it? Um, if he's for it, how does he try to foster it? Mm. If he's against it, what are the reasons for that? Yeah, he was definitely for it, you know, uh, with some qualifications. Uh, when, when we look at his ministry, he was very involved in, in the London Baptist Association. Uh, they often held their meetings at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Uh, he was very involved in the Baptist Union. Uh, he would preach for them and write for them, uh, sit on their boards. Uh, and, and he cultivated kind of genuine relationships with, with other pastors, you know, even though he was this, this huge figure. Um, I, I think his nearest, kind of closest association, though, was the, the informal network that was growing out of the pastor's college. So as, as his students would graduate and go on to pastor their churches, they would come together uh, for an annual conference every year and, and he would have them write for him in the Sword of the Trowel. Um, and yeah, I, th- I think that he felt that that was his kind of closest network. 
but uh, but he, he remained involved in, in other associations. So the, the Evangelical Alliance was another association that he participated in. Uh, but we see that tested in times of controversy, you know, when it comes to Spurgeon's life, right? So during the downgrade controversy, during the baptismal regeneration controversy, there he pulls out of the associations because he feels like they're not taking a stand for the truth, mm-hmm. you know? And so Spurgeon is kind of complicated on this question because uh, he had a massive church and he wasn't, so he wasn't reliant on these associational structures. So it was easy for him to kind of pull out when he was kind of his own mission sending agency, you know? Yeah. But for the small Baptist church, that's not as quite as easy for them to do that. Um, he never wanted to start his own denomination, uh, but he always felt that, you know, it was good to partner with these existing structures. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so, so you mentioned the, I guess the pastor's college. I don't know the technical term for it. I just don't know a lot of the history behind what that looked like and how long that continued post Spurgeon. Mm. So, you know, I read lectures to my students. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I'm familiar with some of that aspect of it. Um, but I just don't have a good concept of what the size of this looks like the, and all of that type of thing. So can you, talk a little bit of that is it connected to the local church really really well or is it completely separate from yeah yeah so during Spurgeon's day he uh, very soon after he kind of began pastoring uh, young men began coming alongside him and saying hey will you mentor me uh, will, you, will you help me kind of train me to be a pastor and so very soon he had these young men begin to live with them and he sort of supervised a, a, a course of education for them and training. Uh, and, and, you know, at first there was one, then two, then four, then eight. And then, so it just kind of grew. Uh, and by 1861, uh, it's grown so much. Um, and because of Spurgeon's outspokenness against slavery, uh, the sales of his sermons plummet in America. And so he's not able to fund the training of these, these young men anymore. And so at that point, the church... Uh, comes alongside Spurgeon and says, hey, we're going to own this ministry as ours. And so uh, that's when kind of the pastor's college formally gets started. And it really becomes a a training venue that is connected to the church. So the students um, are not only funded by Spurgeon and by the church, so no tuition. Uh, The the church covers room and board and all their expenses. Um, Not only that, but... uh, you know, every student has to be a member of the tabernacle. Every student is living with a deacon or an elder in the church or, or another family in the church. And so part of their training is not only kind of the the stuff in the classroom, but is seeing how a church is functioning kind of in, in a healthy way. Um, so it, it was a pretty unique model in, in those days, whereas, you know, so much of pastoral training had been removed from the local church. Spurgeon created something that was very much rooted in the Metropolitan Tabernacle. So how long did it continue to exist? Is, oh, is it still going? It's still going today. Not. Yeah. So there's Spurgeon's College UK. Uh, Philip McCormick is is the the principal there, uh, evangelical school there in London. Yeah, yeah. it's still, still around. Cool. This is a random question, but um, so on a Sunday when they have their 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 gathering of believers, um, how, how long did a service last on a Sunday at, at the Metropolitan Tabernacle? Was it was it a hour and a half was it was it longer than that was it was it did it look similar to what maybe one of our church services would look like today or 
That's a good question. Uh, I I would guess about an hour and a half. I know Spurgeon would preach for about 45 minutes. Uh, he always aimed for that. So I'm guessing the rest of the service, though it was a very mere service, uh, still, I think I would guess hour 15 to hour and a half. Okay. Um, so I wanted to ask you, this is something we, well, at least I like to ask anybody we have on to talk about Spurgeon. What are some of your personal favorite works by Spurgeon and about Spurgeon that, that you just cherish the most uh, among all the works that, that he wrote himself or things that are written about him? If you haven't read his autobiography, that's a great place to, to go. I mean, his his life is just fascinating. Uh, and he writes his own story uh, in a way that's so edifying and so rich with the gospel. Uh, and I would recommend his autobiography for anyone. Uh, beyond that, for especially for folks who enjoy this conversation that we're having and enjoy kind of thinking about pastoral ministry. Uh, you've got, you know, his lectures to my student students, but you don't, you've also got that volume of his um, pastor college conference lectures. So these are the annual conference lectures that he would give. Uh, it's called an all round ministry. It's a great collection of lectures. Um, and then, uh, and then his, his, again, his book soul winner, uh, is also addressed to his students, but a, a great book on evangelism. So I recommend that. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but m- maybe you or somebody else is working on like the lost sp- sermons of Spurgeon. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, so here at the Spurgeon Library in Kansas City, we uh, are coming to the end of publishing um, nine sermon notebooks that were previously kind of buried in history. Uh, these are the sermon notebooks from his kind of uh, pastorate at Water Beach before he went to London, and, and even prior to that when he was kind of a, an itinerant preacher. Uh, and it's a fascinating set of sermons. Uh, you really see Spurgeon's development as a preacher. You know, some of those earlier sermons, uh, kind of like us, you know, we were ripping off John Piper sermons, you know, as we were getting going in our preaching. Spurgeon was ripping off John Gill sermons and Charles Simeon. Uh, but then you see him growing as a preacher, you know, and, and growing in his ability to use language and craft a sermon. Uh, and, and you really get to see him kind of grow as a preacher as he pastors that little village in Water Beach and kind of makes his way over to London. Yeah, it's a fascinating set. That's really neat. And Jeff, you're, you're at Midwestern. You guys have a PhD program and everything. Are you accepting students who are interested in studying more of Spurgeon? Absolutely. Yes. Uh, you know, we are really kind of in a new phase of Spurgeon scholarship. You know, uh, prior to, to this time, I think a lot of people wondered if we should take Spurgeon seriously as a theologian. You know, they, they saw him more as a, a practitioner, but uh, with some kind of key dissertations that have come out, people have argued, I think, very well that Spurgeon, though he was a practitioner, you can tell, you can see that behind that, he had a, a brilliant mind and a very theological mind. And so a lot of our, we have a lot of kind of doctoral students who are coming through and kind of examining his, his life and his thought, uh, kind of his impact on history, a lot of important work to be done on Spurgeon. Uh, and, and we're glad to be kind of in the midst of it there at the Spurgeon Library. That's awesome. Uh, you know, I, I feel like I see the, the photo of the Spurgeon Library more than any photo of any library on Twitter. So <laughs> it gets it gets quite a bit of publicity. I think. You've got to come. You gotta, have you seen it yet, Jordan? I've seen photos. That's you, it. You, you know? visited. Well, you, both of you, Brandon I, and Jordan, you guys can come come visit. I'll give you the grand tour. Yeah, I'd love yeah, to do that. I haven't that. been to Kansas City in uh, it's probably two decades. So 
I need to to make a reason to go out there. Yeah. I'm from St. Louis. Okay. Um, yeah. There was a brief period in my life where I was a Kansas City Chiefs fan as like a first grader. And then I made this terrible mistake to switch over to the Jacksonville Jaguars, mm. which that mm. drought may be ending now that we have the, the better, the true and better Patrick Mahomes. Um, but that's all irrelevant to this conversation. Oh, well. It's a good time to be a Chiefs fan right now. <laughs> that's right. Uh, well, anyway, this is this has been a lot of fun. Um, I think Spurgeon is so interesting, so unique. And as you've mentioned, I really I have noticed this trend of people who seem to be doing more research on him from a mm-hmm. theological perspective. And I think it's super interesting. I mean, I am by no means a Spurgeon expert, but I, I, I am edified by all the stuff that comes out on him. Uh, and partly that I guess that's just because of him and his own ministry. So yeah people who are thinking on it, it's naturally going to be edifying because he was. Yes. So that, that's really neat. And I, I, I'm very thankful you came on to talk to us about Spurgeon's ecclesiology. I think a lot of our listeners are pastors and um, they have these just number one practical questions of like, mm-hmm. how have uh, our forebears gone about these matters? But there's also those who listen, who just, you know, they're history nerds or they're theology nerds of some sort. So it's interesting to examine all these. So this is really, really neat and helpful. So thank you, Jeff, for talking with us and everybody who's been listening. Uh, we encourage you to check out his work. Jeff, you're on Twitter, right? I am. Yep. Okay. So go follow yep. him on Twitter. Uh, and do you have a website? Uh, the, check out the, the website for the Spurgeon Library, which is a Spurgeon.org. And, and we uh, publish a lot of Spurgeon resources there. Uh, and Lord willing, also, you know, my dissertation on Spurgeon's ecclesiology uh, will be published mm. in the near future, Lord willing, uh, by Christian Focus. And I've also got a separate work being published by B&H, uh, just focusing on kind of his pastoral ministry. Cool. Fantastic. That's awesome. So we'll make sure to link to that when that comes out, uh, number one, so that people can go get a copy of it, because I imagine a good chunk of you guys who are listening, that sounds right up your alley. So. Uh, We commend that work to you. Thanks, Jeff, for talking with us. Go follow his work. It's awesome. And um, thanks for everybody who's been tuning in to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.